The date was July 2nd, 1996. It was on a Tuesday in the middle of summer. There I was in a movie theater sitting down waiting for the beginning of Independence Day. But I wasn't alone. I had a guy next to me. And now, 24 years later, I got that same guy right next to me right now. Let's get into this. Welcome to Geekology 101. My name is Diego, and sitting right next to me today is not my usual partner in crime, Joshua. It is my long-life friend. His name is Edgar. You guys may remember him as Casey Jones from the Cowabunga series. Edgar, say what's up to the people, man. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? It feels so good to be back. And even better now, we're in the same room. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Edgar came over to visit over here in Tampa Bay. And uh, we're finally being able to record together in the same spot at the uh, headquarters of Geekology 101 inside my closet. Oh, it feels great to be here. I'm glad we're finally getting to record this thing, you know, next to each other. We're not looking at each other from screen to screen, four hours away, miles. So it's good to be here, man. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. Thanks for, uh, and thanks for doing this specifically with me. So here's the story, people. Um, Edgar and I have known each other since uh, sixth grade, since middle school. And um, we actually went together to the premiere of Independence Day. And when we say premiere, it's nothing fancy. We were just sitting. I think we were alone, weren't we? Yeah. I don't was, remember uh, there being a lot of people in there. It was a hot summer day on a Tuesday night. Yeah. There was not many people. We were during our summer break, and we needed something to do. So we figured, what the heck, let's go check this movie out, which compared to other movies, it actually opened up earlier than, than usual. Yeah, usually movies premiere. Back then, actually, they, were, they would premiere on Friday, like actually on Friday. And maybe on midnight. On two on Thursday, Thursday yeah. yeah. If it was like a, a a big property or something, a big movie or something like that. But so so this movie, um, you know, there were a couple of things that were interesting about this movie. Number one, it was the first like action movie that Will Smith was going to be starring in. Well, before you get into that, yeah, the great thing was that this one opened. There's a reason why it opened on July second. Oh yeah, and that's because the movie started. The actual script was based on July 2nd. Yeah, it's really cool. Like the movie, I remember actually one year I decided, because this movie, I pretty much rewatch this movie every single year when July 4th rolls around. And I remember that one year I decided to actually watch it on the days. <laughs> so like on July 2nd, I watched only the section, the, the chunk for July 2nd, and then the same thing on the 3rd and the same thing on the 4th. Because the movie like pauses, it does these flashes, right? and it points out which day it is. So it's uh yeah it it, it had a, an odd release date but I think that it, it kind of helped it because it, it kind of helped fuel the whole mystique of it. Oh yeah, for sure. I remember it was a lot of um, promotion. The toys were a big deal um, as they were promoting the movie. I remember the toys actually being released before the movie re, re, uh, premiered because I I got the alien like the um what do they call it organic exoskeleton or whatever the. Right. The bio suit. There you yeah, go. Which I currently own at this at this time. Really? Yeah. The only thing that threw me off was the fact that in the movie they are they're white. Oh and yeah, that's the right. The toy came out in a dark bluish purple. Yeah. So yeah, it was um, it was it was a pretty big deal. Will Smith had just come out of um, Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince ended, I think, in 1995, 
Yeah. So he was he was a big deal. Like he was a big name, but he was a big deal because of that comedic role that he had in Fresh Prince, where he was playing kind of like a uh, what do you call it a uh, fictionalized version of himself. You know. Yeah. First was... he had the whole rapping thing with DJ Jazzy Jeff, then came Fresh Prince, and now this was going to be his first big movie break. Um, Which I think it was nice. We saw a different side of uh, his character. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this was, you know, when you really look look back through the years, like, <laughs> you know, Will Smith became, I think until the Marvel movies came out, Will Smith was like the summer blockbuster guy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what his latest movie was, but I would Gemini sure Man? That would be his last I one. Think, yeah, I think so. And even then, he's still making incredible movies. This yeah. guy, you know, he's he doesn't lose a beat. He doesn't. Is. Yeah, and this was the beginning for it. And now the the curious thing about this movie though is that it wasn't fully like unlike his later movies, it wasn't fully revolving around him. Right. You know, this movie was very much dependent on the entire cast, and it had an incredible cast. You know, you got uh, Bill Pullman, you got Jeff Goldblum, um, you got Judy Hirsch, you got uh, Randy Quaid, you got I mean a whole bunch of uh, actors that went on, continued on to have really good careers, and. Jeff Goldblum in specific was one of the main characters that the story uh, surrounded, revolved around his, um, what his is it? knowledge of... Um, Levinson, what was his name again? Uh, David Levinson. David Levinson, yeah. And um, the guy basically was kind of like, ended up being one of the maybe top three characters in the movie. I would say that the main characters in the movie were, pre- were the president. The president, Will Smith. Will Smith's and, character. Um, and Jeff Goldblum's character. Jeff Goldblum had just come out of 1993's Jurassic Park, which, you know, was huge. And his character was very peculiar in that movie. Um, so anyway, let's let's get into a little bit more of the background of the movie. So the movie was directed by Roland Emmerich. And it was written by both Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin. And there's a, a really interesting story about how the idea came about. So... Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin had um, had collaborated on the movie Stargate. <clears throat> and while they were out promoting the movie Stargate, somebody, a reporter, asked uh, Roland Emmerich if it was weird for him to make a movie about aliens when he himself didn't believe necessarily in aliens. I think that's what they were at. They, they asked mm-hmm. him. Yeah, there's actually something here that it says uh, to the reporter. Imagine what it would be like to wake up one morning and to discover 15-mile-wide spaceships were hovering over the world's largest cities. So that's... that's Yeah, and, and, and then Emmerich turned over to Devlin and he said, I think I have an idea for our next film. And that's literally what, 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 what Independence Day uh, starts like. You know, you, you have these 15-mile-wide, and they, they even mentioned that number in the film. Yeah. Um, and so again, it's like these spaceships were like 15, were like an entire city's, uh, size. Um, and he was so intrigued by the idea that they, 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 they turned that into a, an actual movie. So that's how the idea actually came out, which is crazy. Cause like nowadays everybody would be afraid of getting the idea stolen. Yeah. Which is incredible. You figure, you know, inspiration hits you when it hits you. And mm-hmm. he, I'm glad he decided to roll with it. Cause it could have been just something tossed out there and, and yeah. that for be like, yeah, so then, um, so then they create this movie. Um, filming, I think, wrapped up somewhere in like nineteen ninety six. Yeah, in July, uh, June twentieth of nineteen ninety six is when 
the film was officially completed, post-production and the whole deal. And this film really was the beginning of defining, redefining the Hollywood blockbuster. You know, this was the beginning of a, like a new era because movies became huge in, in the sense of like their, their scope. Like this movie gathered so many different characters, right? And you really start off when the movie, when the movie begins, you start off with like everybody in their own corner, you know, and literally in very different cities of the United States. And then little by little, the events, as the days go by, the events just bring them closer and closer together until they're all basically just one unit and they're literally fighting to survive because they're about to get exterminated by these aliens. Um, so anyway, that, that whole concept of like multiple characters, you know, having to team up eventually. I mean, it sounds Avengers-like, to be honest. And, and when you really think about it, like throughout the movie... Several those several key players are doing important things one one by one, and then when they come together, like they unite all their expertise, all their knowledge, all their you know desire to live, and that's how they survive. Yeah, I think it was great that even though everybody was in their, like you said in their own little corner, they were all playing a big role that came together like a puzzle to continue the storytelling. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. just a, a movie clip for no reason, just to fill up time. Right, it served the purpose. The film became the highest-grossing movie of 1996, um, and it actually won an Oscar. It won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, which, man, well-deserved. <laughs> and apparently from what it says here, it also had a Grammy Award winning for the music that was played. Really? Yeah, it said uh, uh, the Grammy Award winning score for the film was composed by David Arnold. Nice. All right, so then... <clears throat> um let's let's get into the actual the actual movie, right? Like what what is it that happens in the movie? So you've got the movie starts off with this massive spaceship that is casting a shadow over the moon, our moon. And the spaceship is drawing near to Earth. And then SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, they have this gigantic satellite that is like constantly trying to pick up signals from outer space. And they start getting the signal that they immediately identify as like a signal from another, you know, intelligent species or whatever. Then they start informing up the chain of command. Uh, you know, they inform the boss of SETI. SETI informs to, you know, the, the general the uh, who works close to the president. The general informs the secretary of state. Secretary of state informs the, uh, the, the president. And like little by little, we're starting to meet these all these characters. I, I love that aspect of the of the opening of the movie. <laughs> it's it's really clever. Yeah, because it's really preparing you for what's to come. It wasn't just yeah. shot in right into the story. Mm-hmm. It was warming itself up into it. Yeah, I really like it. And then like even even through the beginning of the movie, when it finally gets up to the chain of command, through the chain of command, and up to the president, when the president is informed. You have this little scene where he's waking up in the White House and he's waking up next to his little daughter. So you see that he's a loving father. He has a phone call right there in bed with his wife. His wife is in Los Angeles. They have this conversation. You see that there's like this warmth to their relationship. So you, you're getting a little a little hint of him. As he's walking down the hall to go have breakfast in the White House and he eventually ends up um, meeting his, uh, what is it, a secretary of press? Is the White House communications director. There you go. Um, so we meet her, and she's also reading that newspaper, and then they start talking about a story about him. And the, So apparently, like, 
it, it's really cool. Like it's it's really good writing because we pick up just in that little conversation the fact that when he got elected, he was elected because he was although he was a very young president, a young um, candidate. He got elected because he was very like straightforward and very you know kind of like revolutionary or whatever. Um, and he came from being a fighter pilot. So yes. people like really like were drawn to that entire persona of his. But now everybody's like at a point in his career where at a point in his presidency where they're starting to question his his uh, youth. How, right. how, yeah, how young he was. He, is. Uh, he got into the game really late. Yeah. Much older guy. Um, so essentially you get that little point of establishing that he's in the middle of being questioned as a president. And right at that point is when somebody tells him that he has a call from, I think, the Secretary of Defense or something like that. And uh, that's when he's informed. And he's like, I'm sorry, could you say that again? Because clearly they must have told him something like, you know, we got a signal from an alien life or something. Yeah, imagine you get that phone call. Like, aliens are about to attack. It's like, uh, okay, wrong number. Yeah. So uh, then we we start flashing forward and meeting the different characters. Um I think the next one uh, may have been David in New York, in New York City. Yeah, which at the beginning, he seems to be not really involved in everything else that's going on. I think mm -hmm. he's kind of struggling with a relationship with his dad. Uh, he's very set on recycling. And yeah. even when they brought this to his attention, he was still a little like, let me figure other stuff out before this is actually the truth of what's going on. Yeah, we, we end up like getting introduced to him while he's playing a chess match with his dad. And again, writing details, man, like, I love the fact that he's playing chess. Right. Right? It shows that he has a strategic mentality. He has a strategic mindset. His dad uh, starts what you were alluding to. His dad starts, like, questioning him about still wedding, wearing his his wedding band, even though he's been divorced for, what is it, like, three years? Three years, yes. Yeah. And then uh, we don't know who his wife is yet, but it all comes around, like, full circle. And then um, he beats his dad very casually. <laughs> just kind of beats his dad. His dad is like, could you make a move already? And he was like, hold on, I'm thinking. And then he ends up beating him, and his you know dad is hilarious, by the way. What's his dad's, what's the actor's name? I always forget this guy's name. Judd Hirsch is the actor's name. This guy, um, actually, when I was a kid and I got to the United States, I got very heavily into Nick at Night. Mm -hmm. Did you ever watch Nick at Night? I did, but I honestly don't remember. Was he on there? He was in the show Taxi. Then I definitely didn't watch it. Okay, yeah, he was in the show Taxi, and I loved, I loved his whole like thing in in, in Taxi, and um, so anyway, this is the, this is like the next time that I see him in my life, and he's like you know an older an older guy and stuff. So it was um, it was cool, like that whole dynamic between Jeff Goldblum as an actor and Judd Hirsch as an actor, like it was was really cool. They had really cool like back and forth banter. Yeah, they had a great chemistry. He has like a dry sense of humor to him. Right, he just comes out like hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but he says important things without even trying. Yes, without even intending to. Anyway, so then we see uh, that David is actually a cable guy. He works in cable in a cable company, and so when he gets in there, everybody's going crazy because there's some something's going down with the satellites, and the satellites are interrupting the signals to their, their cable channel. And when he uh, starts digging into it, finally, he starts realizing that whatever the, there's the thing that is interrupting is this signal that keeps coming through. But he realizes that there's a pattern to it. Again, this guy's intelligence is really important in the entire movie because he's pattern recognition is a very specific skill that not everybody has. He brought that to the to the table. Yeah, like, it was almost like Morse code. Is that what it is? Not like Morse code. He he's, he realized that it was something like a cycling signal, and he said that every time that it recycled itself, that it cycled, it was it was diminishing. 
that means that he spotted a countdown happening. Okay. And that's when nobody else, not even in the, in the military, had, were able to spot. So then when the president finally comes on TV and he says, like, okay, you know, there's something going on, um, but please calm down. Like, don't, you know, don't stress about it. We're trying to figure out what it is. He's the one that ends up saying, like, I got to go to Washington. I have to put this in front of the president. And we realize that the way that he's planning on doing that is by tapping into his ex-wife, who we find out is the communications director or whatever for the White House. Yes. Connie. So then comes that point when the spaceships arrive. And it's really cool the way that they're like after they enter the Earth's atmosphere, they're like covered, surrounded by clouds and and, and beneath the clouds is fire. <laughs> yeah, it's like a ball of fire heading your way when you picture those dark storms coming at you. It, it's so freaking cool, man. And this is the first time when we were re-watching the movie. Um, this is the, the and I guess we should have started with this, that we sat down and rewatched the movie this week, this weekend. Imagine for you, you said you've been watching it every year around this time. Yeah. This for me was actually the third time, if there was even a second, <laughs> in 24 years. That's crazy. So for me, it was like watching it for the very first time. Yeah. And And when you get to that scene, man... When you get to that scene of the spaceships arriving and hovering over the cities, that's when you realize for the first time it's like the this they earned that Academy Award for special effects, for visual effects. Because first of all, this is before the age of depending heavily on CGI. You know, Jurassic Park back in nineteen ninety three had done a, a mind blowing job with special effects, a combination of practical effects and CGI. But they did it very sparingly, and they did it in a very smart way. Which they I, didn't I, depend on it. I wish they would do that now because that CGI is just too much at one point. Yeah, definitely. It takes away from like the, the experience of it because as soon as you start getting distracted by the fact that something is CGI, at that point, they, 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 they kill the mystique of the movie. Yeah. You know, Especially in 96 to get those effects and watching yeah. it at, at that point in our life as kids. Mm -hmm. Not for nothing, but it, it was believable. Yeah. It was like, okay, this looks real. This can actually happen. Absolutely. Um, so it, it's just striking, man. When those things start hovering over the city, it's really, really striking. And really, and then you start seeing the people's responses. Even after the president said, please calm down, you immediately go into a scene where it's essentially like everybody's going <laughs> absolutely nuts. Uh, and it, it kind of reminds you a lot of the stuff that we've been seeing right now in this, in this current time with you know, the riots sparked by uh, racial injustice and inequality and stuff, even though no matter how much the government can, the government's local governments and federal government has said, like, calm down, please just don't. Yeah. It's still happening. And, you know, human nature is human nature. And when you start being driven by either, you know, pain or anguish or hate or, uh, in this case, fear, um, you're going to start messing stuff up, you know? No, and, and the hard part for me watching it now was that scene when they were hovering over New York and you watch everybody panic and run for their life. It's it's sad enough to, at that moment, to think, oh, I was like, oh, man, they're overreacting. Right. But then you get something six years, seven years later, mm -hmm. you know, with 9-11. And, Ooh, yeah, it's, yeah it, it hit home. It was like, you know what? There is no correct way of, right, of handling a situation it. like that. Yeah. That, that's absolutely right. Wow, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, man. And in New York, you're right. Yeah, it was like... Yeah. Yeah, it, it was very impactful. Like, it, it made me feel a certain type of way. Hmm. 
So um, after this point, we get basically David getting over to the White House. He figures out a way to get in front of the president. We learned that there's been drama in the past between him and the president because he felt like Connie was cheating on him with the president. This is before he was actually the president. But he thought that he was cheating on her, on him with, with, with him. And um, apparently they had a fight. Like yep. he walked into the room, confronted him, punched him, and then they got into a back and forth <laughs> fight. And uh, during this whole time when they're walking through the White House and making their way to the Oval Office, it's hilarious. Judd Hirsch's character, um, Mr. Levinson, he um, he's just making all sorts of jokes. You know, like, oh, if I would have known that I was going to come to the White House, I would have worn a tie. I mean, look at me. I look like a Shamil. <laughs> just a, a bunch of hilarious little quips. This guy, bro, it's incredible how much that guy adds and it, it's to subtle. Scenes. It's subtle. It every, is. Everything is very serious. You know, they're they're trying to, like, you know, figure out what to do. They're trying to keep everybody safe. But he knows, like, the right moments, even though I don't think you would be joking in a situation like this. Right. But it, it gave you that moment of, like, okay, let's ease up a little bit. And then it gets back to serious. Yeah. And ease up. So I think those parts are needed. And I feel like that is, that's an art. As a writer, if you're putting together an action movie or a thriller or a suspense movie, Knowing how to add in bits of humor to ease it up at the right moment, that is an art, man. That's not an easy thing to do. What at least I notice now is that they, instead of having those sort of moments where the joke applies to what's going on, I feel like now they're basing a whole scene just to yes. tell a joke. Yes. And you end up you end up essentially taking up so much screen time that it, it's, you know, you, you take away from the movie. Because now, if you spent if you spent five minutes in introducing an entire comedic scene, then you know that's probably four minutes more than you should have, and now you're taking those four minutes away from an action scene or from a character building scene. Like, it, yeah. And you and you can actually see the setup of the joke coming to the point where it's no longer funny as to here, where it's yes. like it's unexpected. Right. You know, right now these people are preparing. You know, like, we got to catch a helicopter and get out of here before all this happens. And the joke gets thrown in there. Yep. Something very subtle is like, I should have worn a tie. Yeah. You don't see it coming. Yeah. So then finally, David gets in front of the president. The tension kind of like breaks as they're about to, like, the, the president is like, I don't have time for this right now. There's an alien invasion happening. You're bringing your ex over here. Okay. So finally, uh, he's able to speak to him and he, and he describes basically his theory that um, the aliens don't have line of sight to be able to send the signal directly to all the ships around the Earth. And the Earth, since the Earth is a uh, circular oval, uh, contrary to what you know, <laughs> flat earthers, yeah, are saying out there, they can't have line of sight. Therefore, they have to use something to bounce off signals, and they're using our own satellites against us. And that is how they're coordinating with all their ships around the globe to plan the attack, the countdown to start attacking. Now, here's where we learn basically what the plan of this alien species is. Really, for the first time, we start realizing that they have. A the plan of attacking major cities with major population in several waves. So the first wave, you have um, spaceships hovering, talking only right now about the United States, you have spaceships over New York, Washington, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And in other parts of the world, you got them over cities like Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, Toronto in Canada, Havana, Cuba. Man, poor Cubans, bro. Uh, <laughs> mind you, one blast will probably take out the entire island. So, <laughs> And still more than that. Yeah. Um, you got them over, over Lagos, Nigeria. You got it over Singapore. You got it over Manila, Philippines, Shanghai, and China. And, and, you know, a whole bunch of others. So you've got 
every ship positioned around, and, and I think David Levinson puts it the best in the movie where he says they're positioning their ships strategically and they're getting ready to attack. And then Marty, which is another hilarious character in the movie, um, he asks him, and then what? And then, you know, he's like, then checkmate. So like, This is my question, though. Yeah. Why, starting from the United States, why those, were they trying to cover the corners of the United States that they put two ships on the east and two ships on the west mm -hmm. as to maybe putting one east, one in the further south, like near like Texas or somewhere, and then one in California? That's they, actually a good question. Hold on. I'm opening up a map here of the U.S. Because, I mean, you got New York and you got Washington, which they're not very far apart. Right. And then you got California and San Francisco, which are pretty much in the same place. Yeah. Why there? Like, what was the strategic move that they were actually going for? That's a good question. Because then from there, the second wave that they positioned themselves over was in the U.S. was Philadelphia. Again, very close to New York and D.C. Um, Atlanta. Then they moved to the south. So that kind of makes sense. Uh, Denver, Colorado. So now you're going over towards the middle, more or less, Midwest. Um, what else we got? We got Seattle, Washington. So now you're going right to the, the top left corner. And then you got Chicago. You're going over here. So I guess, yeah, they're gonna they're kind of going like bottom left, top right, bottom right, top left, and then middle. And then from there, spread. So yeah. maybe that's kind of like what the, what the it, it strategy like they was. they were working themselves inwards. In but a way, even yeah. Even then, I, I'm a chess player, and I I don't see it. But I guess, you know, they, they saw something that I don't see. Yeah, I was wondering if it was based on centers of population. So, like, you know, the, the highest concentration of population in the country. But it doesn't really add up. Yeah, because at this point, if, <clears throat> would it really matter? I mean, they, they're going to take care of the whole United States does it really matter where you start right and and you would you would want to say like for example like okay why not hit Texas right because Texas is pretty populated but the, one of the in the first wave they positioned over Mexico City okay so you could almost say that by positioning themselves in Mexico they were they have the entry point right there into the uh, central south of the of the US beginning with Texas most likely um yeah oh so okay so then they position their ships and they're going through the waves. And then, you know, the first attack happens. Uh, David Levinson basically tells the president his theory with only, I think, what was like 24 minutes or something to go before yeah, the were, countdown ends. They were definitely on the countdown. Yeah. So then they decided immediately to get on Air Force One and get out of there. And they're literally getting out as flames are like burning up the butt of that plane. And they managed to make it with a lot of turbulence, but they managed to make it. And they stay in the air for a while. While they're in the air, the president is debating with his people whether they should nuke these ships. And they actually attempted to make contact with the ships <laughs> through uh, the lights. Yeah, yeah, flashing lights, that's another part that I'm... That was really strange. Like, I know you can send signals through lights, but they were not doing it in any specific pattern. They were just turning them on and turning them off. But even if they had any kind of specific pattern, would it be a pattern that aliens, somebody from another world, would recognize? Like that, that made very little sense. I feel like that was only there to basically show that the aliens were hostile. Yeah. Because it was right after that point where they decided, let's get the heck out of here, out of Washington, and get on Air Force, on Air Force One. 
So it seems like that was the purpose of that whole scene where the helicopter went up with the lights and all that stuff. It was just to get that helicopter and the two accompanying uh, helicopters shut shut down so that we could know it was like, okay, these guys mean business. They're not here um, in friendly on friendly terms. They want to they wanna destroy us. So anyway, th- around this point is when we finally meet Will Smith's character. Um, what's his character's name again? Captain Stephen Hiller. He's a Marine pilot. And um, Devlin and Emmerich, the writers of the movie, had always envisioned an African-American for that role. And specifically, they wanted Will Smith after seeing him perform in Six Degrees of, of Separation, which was uh, another movie that he was in, which I've actually never seen. Have you seen I, it? I've never seen it. Yeah, never watched it. So he was their fantasy pick, and they got it. And we see Will Smith waking up to a very beautiful Vivica A. Fox. And uh, their dog is waking him up, like chewing up his Jordans or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, handing it to him. Yeah. And then the kid, the little kid, um, who is uh, Vivica Fox's son in the movie, Jasmine is her name. Uh, Jasmine's son was, came in and he was like, you know, Will Smith was like, what you doing? He was like, shooting the aliens. And he's like, oh, you're shooting aliens, huh? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You know, which is funny because their chemistry between uh, Will Smith and and the little boy yeah. is something they already had on Fresh Prince. How so? Oh, wait. Was that the little boy from Fresh Prince? Yeah, that's the one that they had. Uh, Holy that, cow, uh, you're right. Yeah, that his uh, uncle and his aunt, you know, they had years later. So they already had that bond from, from the show. Oh, snap. Hey, man, I had completely forgotten. Actually, now that you mentioned that, so like I started I started watching, re-watching Fresh Prince for the first time and I'm like in season two right now, halfway through season two. So I hadn't gotten I haven't gotten to that, that point, point yet. Yeah. But I completely forgot that the little kid came from there, man. Yeah, so I think it was a great addition to that because they, they already knew each other, they were comfortable. Absolutely. And even though they didn't interact too much into the movie, like you can tell by their bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did yeah, that little kid really did feel like really chill around him for sure. Anyway, so then uh Will Smith goes out to grab the newspaper, and he somehow manages to miss the 15-mile-wide <laughs> spaceship that was hovering right in front of his line of sight. Uh, but he's looking at the neighbors because he figures, like, the neighbor, he saw that the neighbors through the bathroom window that they were moving, and he told Jasmine, he's like, ah, they're probably moving, they're tired of all the earthquakes or whatever. <laughs> and then when he walks out, he realizes that, like, no, everybody's actually packing up their stuff and getting ready to leave, and he's like, what the heck is happening? Helicopter hovers over him, and that's when he realizes gigantic spaceship right there in the horizon. And uh, little kid comes out and pew, pew, pew. Which Jasmine also misses when she brings out uh, his cup of coffee. Yes, yeah. How do you miss? I I don't know. Like, are you that? It's very hard to miss, but at least a little boy noticed, and he was prepared with his, uh, what was it, like a little water gun? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was was armed and ready for sure. Um, So after this point, basically, uh, Will's character, uh, Stephen Hiller, he decides that he needs to go back and report to El Toro, which is the, the marine base that he's stationed in. And, um, you know, Jasmine is all worried. She doesn't want him to go. She's scared, obviously, for her and her son with this alien ship, you know, hovering over their, over them pretty much. So she, um, they agree basically that she's going to meet up with him at El Toro after she finishes her work. She's uh, an exotic dancer in her own words. Which we got to keep in mind at this point, they were not, they were in a relationship, but they were married. They weren't engaged. Correct. They were right. just seeing where things went. Yeah. 
And when Steve gets to the base, we see his, uh, who was a, you know, we can kind of assume his best friend, basically, uh, which is uh, played by Harry Connick Jr. Uh, he was he actually took the role from, or, you know, he was switched off. It was originally going to be played by... Matthew Perry. By Matthew Perry from Friends, which is... <laughs> I think he was a good choice. I yeah. I, I enjoy Matthew Perry's work, but I don't think he would have been, you know, he wouldn't have been fit for that movie role. Yeah. he, he I wouldn't have felt the vibe of marine pilot from him yeah because i i feel like he's just on all the time as being funny yeah i could i wouldn't be able to take him too serious even though the guy was playful uh harry connick jr he was playful throughout a lot of the movie especially with uh well continue telling the story we'll get into the scene yeah so basically they're kind of like in the locker room and, and steve just got there he's changing and as he's changing um the uh oh oh uh, there was a letter put uh, put into his locker yeah and um what was what was harry connick jr's character's name again i forget uh captain jimmy wilder jimmy there you go all right yeah jimmy yeah (laughs) (laughs) so jimmy um he ends up seeing and he's like oh my god you know this is from nasa so here we find out that stephen heller heller is actually been applying to become an astronaut and that his dream is to go into outer space. Again, writing details, man. It's just yeah. like little things that the script drops that are just give us a, a, a glimpse into the into these characters. So he's been applying, and then he says, "You read it." I, I you know, I don't want to, you know, I can't read it. And so um, Jimmy starts reading it, and if, and unfortunately, it's you know a yeah. rejection, a no go. Yeah, and that's when we find out another bit of a detail, which is that Jasmine is actually an exotic dancer. And Jimmy tells him right out, straight up, like, listen, you're not going to get to NASA. You're not going to become an astronaut if you're, you know, dating an exotic dancer. And, um, oh, right, because the ring falls off, actually. Yeah, when he's uh, going through his locker stuff, it falls out, and his friend picks up the ring. Yeah. Before he even picks up the ring, he's like, look, if you're going to move on, you're going to have to kiss him butt. Yep. And he actually gets on his knees just choking around pretending to kiss his butt. Yeah. And the ring falls out. He picks it up, opens it up, and he adjusts himself where he's like on one knee looking like he's proposing. <laughs> and coincidentally, one of their, their teammates just happens to walk by and does one of those awkward like, uh, what's going on? And right he, as he's saying, yeah. Stevie, this is the wedding ring. <laughs> Yeah. You see, even in like in the serious moment, they gotta yeah. find a way. They gotta yeah, find a way. absolutely, man. And then so here we find out a whole bunch of stuff. This guy wants to be an astronaut, marrying an exotic dancer isn't gonna help her, but he does have plans of marrying her. He's in love with this woman, he wants a life with this woman, and now he's we realize that he's smack in the middle of a very difficult decision. Do I stay with this woman, knowing that if I marry her, they might reject me just for that reason, or do I pursue my dreams to being to getting into outer space of being an astronaut and forfeit what is you know my love you know for yeah. this for this person? Um, and we also get to see the depth of the friendship that Jimmy and, and Steve have. You know, we get to establish that because clearly, this is a duty trust with all his life information. Yeah. Um. So then. Um, what comes after this? Uh, they basically, I think they go into a briefing of some sort. Yeah, he's uh, pretty much updating them on, on what's going on, the situation, what their approach is going to be. Yeah. And um, they have this thing where they're, before they go out into combat or, or anything, they, they take out cigars. Oh, yeah. That's the, the thing that him and, and his best friend have. It's a celebration. Yeah, it's like a preparation for celebration afterwards. And um, 
So we see them kind of like get the briefing on where the alien spaceships are positioned and what it is that they're going to do. And they're apparently going to be the first, uh, I don't know if they call it squadron or whatever, of fighter pilots who are going to fly up to one of these things and see what's going on. Like see if, you know, if they can shoot them or whatever. And they're nervous, but all of them are kind of anxious because they realize now after the helicopter got shot down, like these people mean business, you know, these yeah. aliens, they're not here for, for peace. So uh, soon enough, we get into that scene where the fighter pilots are going in. And this is where we find out that they actually, these alien spacecrafts have these gigantic shields covering the entire craft and the shields are impenetrable, not missiles, not fire, not, not bullets, nothing can penetrate through. Um, we also get the first glimpse of the aliens version of their fighter ships. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. It takes me back to like Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. They're like basically a dogfight ensues between these, uh, alien, small alien ships and, um, the fighter pilots on their, uh, what are they drive? What are they piloting? F-16s or something? F-18s? F-18s. Yeah. F-18 Hornets is what they're piloting. Uh, their squadron is called the Black Knights, and this is actually man. When I when I started seeing like the entire element of military, specifically of of um, of the Marines, it got me enough that like it captured my attention enough that by the time I was in I was in high school, I started like applying for you know for information on how to on on enlisting for the Marines. Yeah, for the Marines. Like I, I started see I, this this movie kind of like romanticized the idea of of being a marine. Like I love the courage that was in it, the fact that he was like, oh, this is like a step towards, um, eventually being in NASA and becoming an astronaut. Like all that stuff, I was like, what? That world is awesome. I want to. Were you hoping to fight a- aliens at one point? <laughs> I wanted to be ready to fight <laughs> aliens if I had to. Which but, is twenty twenty, so I wouldn't put it past. Yeah, it. yeah, they they might be showing up anytime soon. It's <laughs> the truth. Hey, maybe July second. <laughs> we only well, got a couple of days. Yeah, we'll we'll get to see uh we'll get to see Independence Day come to life. <laughs> Who knows? It really would not surprise me. Twenty twenty is that year. All right, so then, um, so yeah, we have this dogfight happening, but they're completely overwhelmed. The individual small ships of from the alien uh, fleet they all have their own shields. So not only is the big ship impenetrable, the small ships are impenetrable. They wipe out this entire squadron with the exception of Jimmy and Steve. And they're basically two on two, you know, two alien ships hunting their their, their two um, F-18s. And as they're in the middle of that, Jimmy has the idea to (laughs) try something out. (laughs) Yeah, he just decides to pull a maneuver, which till this time, this day, I still don't know what it was. (laughs) He just said, hey, I'm going to try something, and he just kind of took a quick left turn. Yeah. And and that was it. <laughs> I didn't see the maneuver. He lost his breath because, you know, he had to take off his mask, and then uh, they just shoot him down, and that's when we get that, Jimmy! <laughs> Jimmy, no! Yeah, you felt that yeah. for, for his friend. For sure, man. For sure. But it was, you know, like, it, he was in the movie for a short time. But again, we got enough to know like these two were close. Yeah, you know? very impactful. Yeah, so so that part sucked. And then we have basically the scene where uh, Will Smith ends up taking out this other, um, this one spaceship that was chasing him, and um, we get to, like the most Will Smith 
scenes, you know, in yeah. the, uh, the beginning of the Will Smith that we would later on come to love in summer blockbusters, uh, where the, the alien craft crashes, Will Smith comes down in a parachute and lands in such a way that his <laughs> legs should have been non-existent. Yeah, his legs should have been broken, yeah, back for sure. broken, everything. Yeah, but he's Will Smith, so he got up right away. Like, of course. Didn't even need to recover. No, there was no days, no confusion. Mm-hmm. He went straight to it. Um, he opened up, I don't know how, but he opened up the spacecraft, and the alien comes out, yeah, looking all <laughs> ugly and stuff. Didn't even flinch, you know, he just punched him, and he That's has it. his welcome to Earth line. Not for nothing, but that was a hell of a punch because they kept that uh, yeah. alien unconscious for hours to come. Yep, it did. Yeah, it knocked him out. It knocked him out uh, uh, into into a solid sleep. And um, and then we have the hilarious scene of him dragging him and having a conversation with this passed out alien. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been in the barbecue. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just uh, he eventually ends up meeting up with this whole like... Uh, well, let's tell their side of the story. Where oh, were yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Where were the they point. coming from? Okay, so we get introduced to this group, uh, to this, like, um, the, the, this family of young Hispanics, basically. Like, you know, I don't know if they're Mexican or Central Americans from somewhere. Uh, three children and, yeah. and their single dad. And we, we see them, and they're Hispanic. His dad is, a, is, is an American, though. So I assume that their mom was a Hispanic one. Probably. Yeah. And then we, um, we see that this guy is a drunk. And he is a dust, a crop duster? Yeah, crop duster. Yeah. Dusting in the wrong place. Yeah, he dusted the wrong field. His son comes over and lets him know that he dusted the wrong field. And then he's all depressed and he goes into a diner or bar or something. Uh, and he's drinking his butt off. And then in come these three guys who know him from around town or whatever. They start making fun of him. One of them specifically starts making fun of him because he got abducted, abducted by aliens. So, of course, no one believes that he got abducted by aliens. This guy's character, by the way, is Dusty... Dusty something? Um, Dusty... Uh, what is his name? Oh, no, Russell. Sorry. Russell, Russell Case. Russell Case is the, the guy's character. He's played by Randy Quaid. And honestly, I gotta say, man, like... Pretty great character. Pretty yeah. great character. Yeah, because they gave you, like, a little... I don't even know how to put it. Like he had already encountered them before. Yes. You know, so it's it it was it kind of later on when we talk about it, it kind of prepares you for another stage in the movie where it's like okay, this is not the first time these people are dealing with aliens. Oh yeah, yeah. So it kind of prepares you for that just with his little bit of oh uh, yeah, you know he's been captured by them before. Yeah, and you know one thing that I love and I've always loved like alien related stuff, you know, and especially when I was a teenager, I was very very much into it. I would watch documentaries, I would watch shows, I would watch whatever I could get my hands on related to alien and first encounters and all that kind of stuff. And one thing that this movie does very, very well is, like, it pulls from all those things that you would normally be like, oh, mm-hmm. that's tabloid stuff, you know? Yeah. People talking about I was abducted by aliens or did the government recover some kind of crashed spaceship or, you know, all that stuff that seemed like conspiracy theories. This movie pulls on all those little things to be like, oh, no, these people that you thought were crazy, they were right all along. You know, you were the one that was, like, not wanting to pay attention. So, um, so yeah, so we get the, these people making fun of him for his alien abduction that they didn't believe happened, and then suddenly there's, like, an earthquake thing happening, and they walk out, and boom, there's a, a, a gigantic spaceship hovering over, I think, what is it, um, New Mexico or something? Mex- maybe, could they have been in Mexico City, actually, now that I think about it? I mean, they were driving distance from 
Area 51. Yeah, and so, they, they traveled, like, a long, long distance in, across the deserts. Yeah, so, yeah, I would put it in, yeah, in New Yeah, they were, they were probably in New Mexico or, or in Mexico City or something because that, that's where the first wave parked, and, and at this point they hadn't attacked yet. Must have been somewhere around there. Anyway, the point is that you um, you have the, the the alien spaceship show up, and of course it shuts that guy up. Who's <laughs> making fun of Russell Case for talking about his alien abduction, which doesn't stop him from making fun of him later on again as he's being interviewed on the news. But um, so basically, Russell Case and his three kids, his two sons and his daughter, they end up um, getting into their RV. And they hit the road. You know, they want to get the heck out of there as far away from, from the alien as possible, from the alien ship as possible. Um, while they're with that caravan, it, it ends up forming into, like, a massive, like, yeah. it's not even a caravan. It's a, yeah, I mean, they lived in the trailer park, so pretty much everybody that lived within a couple mile distance, they all just teamed yeah. up and decided to move together. And it seems like more and more people were added yeah. on. Because yeah, okay. by the time that we see that caravan, that that, that whole group of RVs again, they're covering like the whole expanse of the desert and it's like a mobile city almost, you know, yes. they're all mobilizing and they're smack in the middle of a desert. The, what is that? The Nevada desert. Um, and this is where we see one of the first connections of the movie, which is when Russell case pulls up, uh, when Russell case and the whole caravan meets up with Will Smith's character with which, Stephen Heller when he's dragging the alien. Did they ever pinpoint where they were heading? No. Because they didn't know about Area 51 at that point. They didn't, no. They just said that uh, that everybody was moving in a direction. I remember that the older son told Russell that everybody was packing up and getting ready to move in a different direction because there was an alien spacecraft approaching okay. where they were. So they were just basically kind of like moving away from wherever the ships were. Probably south. Yeah. So they're moving. They come across Will Smith. Impossible to miss him because he, ma- he was like the only thing in front of them in miles yeah there's nothing in all directions and you get that colorful parachute and hey he's all dressed in yeah. green and yeah yeah so will smith tells him hey while i was flying overhead i saw a military base russell checks the map he says i don't see anything here and he's like trust me it's it, there it's there yeah. then in uh over uh over up in the skies we in on uh, air force one We've got this conversation happening between the president and his people considering whether they should nuke the the spaceships. And they figure a nuke should take care of this thing, you know? And then Dave Levinson overhears this while he's walking around after getting all airsick. He overhears it and he just jumps right in like if he's part of the <laughs> like if he's part of the of, of his uh his staff. And he says, No, no, you can't nuke. Are you crazy? Nuclear winter, the end of life as we know it, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, the general or the secretary of, of defense or somebody starts saying, like, you can't be here. Get the heck out of here. <laughs> then uh, homeboy's dad comes around. Julius comes around. And he's like, hey, hey, don't you talk to my David like that. You would all be dead if it weren't for my David. And That was, um, that was a good impression. It was. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I've been practicing it for 24 <laughs> years. I should be pretty good by now. So then uh, he comes around, and this is where we get this other thing that you were alluding to. Where uh, where they they the movie taps into another kind of like alien lore. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, like in the middle of that conversation, uh, Julius is saying, "Is like you all knew about this and you did nothing, you know? Like back when was it in New Mexico in 1980, whatever?" Uh, he's like, "You recovered the alien spacecraft." So Dang. the president 
Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, so the only guy that apparently knew, and I'm not sure if I have the right guy, Robert Logia, Logia as General William Gray. No, the general is the other guy. The much, well, they were... The older gentleman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Randy Quaid? No, Randy Quaid is Russell. Yeah. Uh, It's uh, Zidziki, something like that, is the character's last name. Zidziki? 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 Nimziki, there you go. It's placed by uh, playing by James Rebhorn, Albert Nimziki. Okay, so he's the Secretary a, of Defense. He was the only one that was aware of. Yeah, because he was a former director of the CIA. Yeah, so he was privy to some secrets, some military secrets that even the president had no clue about. And basically, the president is trying to tell Julius Levinson, like, sir, regardless of what you read in the tabloids, there was never any recovered spaceship. Okay, there was, there is no such thing as Area Fifty One. And then along comes Mr. Nimziki. <laughs> and he's uh, like... He has that awkward well, face. Like, uh, yeah. It, it reminds me kind of like a little kid. Yeah. You like, know? Uh, like, well, actually, that may not be exactly mm-hmm. correct. And then I think David is like, wait, what? Which yeah. part? So fast forward mm-hmm. to now, we have our meeting point. Where all the parties involved, all these different characters are now all, you know, headed in the same direction. And that direction is Area 51. So at this point, we have Will Smith. We have the president. Mm -hmm. Somehow, uh, Russell found his way in there. Yep. And I think at this point, Vivica Fox was still at a different pinpoint. Mm -hmm. Because remember, her part is kind of... Not too much, imp- not as important as everybody else's, but she did meet someone along the way that is important. Yes. We can, we can talk about that at this point. Because by this point, the attacks have started. Yeah, so let's, let's go back to... So the first wave has happened. That means that New York, Washington, and L.A., San Francisco, have all been wiped out. Now, in L.A., that's where two characters were. Uh, two of the characters were. Uh, you had um, uh, Jasmine, mm-hmm. right? Steve Heller's girl. And then you also had the first lady. Right. You had the president's wife out there who wanted to stay to try to, like, back him up in not panicking. So she didn't want to, like, rush over back to Washington to, to, to be with him so that people wouldn't think, like, these people are losing control. Wait, you remind me. Where was she at this point? Because they were both on the West Coast. Who? Uh, the first lady. She was in L.A. Doing? She was just, I don't know, doing some kind of- <laughs> Doing first lady stuff, right? I don't know. What, what do first ladies do? Okay, she was there. Okay, so they were in the same area. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the reason why why uh, Jasmine eventually ends up coming across her. So L.A. is actually destroyed. Like, L.A. is wrecked. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people on a rooftop who are, like, you know, just clamoring for the aliens to beam them up. And they shot down a beam, but it wasn't to, you know, take them up to the spaceship. It was... To destroy... Demolish them. Yeah. Which, by the way, man, those destruction scenes. Let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> it's incredible. Obviously, as an adult, now you catch it more that they're just kind of like these little model skills. Right. And you can actually tell if you pay close enough attention. Mm-hmm. But at that point, it's like, wow, that 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 can possibly happen. And it, it actually could. Yeah. Not the alien part, just the destruction of the... I mean, listen, take, taking it back to what you said before, man... Like you know, how was it for... No, no, no. Oh. No, to, to, uh, to uh, September 11th. Yeah. Taking it back to that day, how did how did it feel? I was in I was in my English class, first period English class. And they, we had a TV in the class. 
and we put on the TV, first tower had already been hit, and we were just seconds away, minutes away from seeing the second tower get hit, and if I felt like I was watching a movie. Yeah, yeah, it was... Um, it was surreal. I'm pretty sure everybody that's listening out there, you can probably remember, if, if you're old enough, where you were at that exact moment. Yeah. And I actually woke up to this news, and it wasn't because I was in bed, but I was in my wish-up class taking a nap. <laughs> And what? Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of mastered that thing. And I, yeah, but like everybody was, you know, in, in awe as to what was going on. And, and, and yeah, just like you, I was witnessing the se- the second plane. Hit. Yeah. So that when it comes to destruction on a building that size, you know, it, it makes you hit home. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's doable. Yeah. And let's not even talk about when the first tower falls. Like when that when that happened, th- that takes me back. That's where I was. I was making this connection. That that really takes me back to these buildings being destroyed in the in the movie. Because mm-hmm. you're like, oh wow, you know, look at that. You know, it's a building being destroyed. But no, we saw this thing happen, and it f- it looked like special effects. Yeah. Watching it live on TV, I felt like I was looking at something that was made out of special effects. We had seen New York City being attacked and destroyed so many times already in movies. This is before the Avengers even happened. But we had seen it so many times that it just felt surreal. Like, wait, am I truly seeing reality here? You know, it's really crazy. And it wasn't like even years later because I went to New York uh, last year. Oh, I'm sorry, this year. And I went to the museum that they have currently built now. Mm-hmm. And it was up close as to everything that was in the building or around the building. And just seeing a fire truck, you know, be crumbled down to nothing mm-hmm. was incredible. And it wasn't even in the direct path. It was just the debris that it got. Wow. And it's like, wow. It's like, you know, it's the damage that something like that can cause. And then you intensify by a freaking laser beam. Right, right. I'm surprised anything stood. Which, yeah. which takes me to my next point. So if that building is destroyed to the max, everything around it is in there. Yeah. And at this point, Vivica A. Fox is with her dog and her kid trying yeah. to get away. Mm-hmm. They're stuck in traffic. Everybody sees this blast coming, the fireball. Yeah. They get out of the car. They go into what seemed to be like a tunnel on an expressway or a street. They were in a tunnel, yeah. And she starts heading towards like some kind of open door, like a door that she kicks open. Yeah, which I'm guessing it has like all the electrical components to right. run the lights and all that. She doesn't even bother closing the door. Yeah. But she survives. Right. That was my only like, uh, yeah. Like, Seriously? That part, I mean, I remember, I remember even even since back then, I man. Even since we saw this thing first in middle school, I, I remember back then having a having a little bit of an issue with that because it's like this. Really, the initial blast, what it causes from these spacecrafts, is basically a, a tidal wave mm-hmm. of fire, and the fire is so intense and destructive that it like wrecks buildings in its path, like it, it destroys everything in every direction that it goes in. So if this is basically a result of that, a result of that blast, could have been, it could have been that this blast was far away enough because she was on her way out of the city. You know, she was in the highway on her way out. Mind you, again, the traffic is bumper to bumper. It's like, you know, dragging. So it could have been that she was on her way out of the city. But even then, if the fire was strong enough, because I think it was like flipping cars over and stuff in the tunnel. Yeah, it was destroying everything in its path. So it doesn't make sense. And she left the door open specifically because her dog, she wanted the dog to come to safety. Oh, man, that guy deserves an award. He really does, man. <laughs> he like, played such a big role in that moment. I was like, yes, he did. is he going to make it? Is he not? <laughs> yeah. And he did. He made like, it was like one of those intense scenes that like human beings use right. to just be like, wow, is he going to make it? And he yeah. finally does. 
Yeah, that guy just an like, Oscar. Let us just say that like if this movie would have been rated R, that dog wouldn't have survived. <laughs> that dog would have been taken away by the fire. Um and possibly Vivica's character right. disfigured by fire too. But anyway, instead, she ends up surviving somehow without closing the door. The most that happens is that the light bulb breaks for some reason. Yeah, I don't think the door would have made a difference, but yeah, she didn't even bother closing it. Yeah. I mean, at least I would have, like, she was, and it wasn't, like, a deep room either. No, it wasn't. It was a very, like, I don't know, maybe two, three feet or so? Yeah, probably as big as the closet right now. Yeah. Yeah, she so, walked like, in, she hit the wall, and she, like, kind of crunched down, and that was it. Yeah. All, all, all I mean... At least with the door closed, I would have like pressed my legs against the door, you know, to like keep it keep it shut somehow. Yeah. Avoid from getting burned. Yeah, but anyway, um, so she and her son are fireproof. Their their dog <laughs> and his fur were as well. That's pretty impressive. So they survive. Eventually, she you know crawls her way out of the tunnel with her kid and the dog, and she ends up um, finding this truck that had conveniently <laughs> left their keys left their keys at the uh, top in the uh, sun visor thing. And um, she ends up running around, driving that truck around, basically, around the rubble and finding survivors. And one of the survivors that she finds is a first lady. Um, now, once she has her truck full, her point, her uh, mission is to get to El Toro, which is basically uh, has been destroyed by this point. She doesn't know this. But um, after the squadron of the Black Knights went to try to do that first attack... Um, not only did they all get wiped out, but the alien spaceships that had come out of the main spaceship all went and started attacking El Toro and wiped it clean. Um, Will Smith's character has now um, linked up with the RV moving city. Mm -hmm. um, at this same time, area at Area 51, you got Air Force One landing. The president gets down with his entire entourage. Uh, and the president is basically just mind blown by what he's seeing at Area 51. And he's pretty pissed off, too, uh, the fact that he didn't know about this. You think that it plays into real life now? Like the president is kept, you know, away from certain things that they may know? I think so. I think it's possible, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that, I mean, compartmentalization is, is kind of like part of national defense. You know what I mean? Like if, like think about it, a president continues public life after he leaves the after he leaves office. That's true. He's only there for four to eight years and, and they yeah. said, so they don't want to share too much with them. Right. Okay. But people that. people in the intelligence community, like they know secrecy. You know, mm -hmm. they know what that's about. And they know that, you know, once you're in it, like you know, <laughs> you better watch your back if you if you try to, you know, leak any information or whatever. So I think that those people are probably bound to a, you know, a really high degree of secrecy. This is me. I don't know anything, but whatever. Um, so anyway, the president gets there. He gets introduced to Dr. Oaken, who is this, you know, crazy dude played by the guy who plays, um, Data in the, in Star Trek, um, who looks nothing like him, by the way, because of the fact that he has crazy amounts of hair, you know? Um, so this doctor basically goes, the scientist goes and introduces them, shows them the spaceship that they had actually recovered in New Mexico back in 1984 or whatever. And, or 1950s, whatever. Um. I think it's 47. Is that what it is? Okay. I think it was. Um, so they show them the spaceship and they start telling them that basically during the last 24 hours, everything inside that spaceship has turned on, that it had been static, dormant this entire time. But as soon as the spaceship showed up, boom, that thing turned on. And so apparently it's, uh, kind of like a hive thing going on where the main ship being present 
is what powers and activates all the smaller ships. So the smaller ships cannot survive without the main ship. Yeah. And they play around with that a lot in the sequel, the unfortunate sequel that they made. Um, then uh, we have Will Smith's character arriving to Area 51 with the entire caravan of RVs, and they tell him, you don't have clearance, you can't come in here. And he was like, let me show you my clearance. <laughs> Opens up, shows the alien, is like, uh, you know, should I, should I just leave this here with you? And they let him go in. With everyone, which is surprising. I understand letting him go in with the yeah, alien. But, but everybody else is like, yeah, just make yourself yeah. at home. <laughs> so anyway, all these people get to Area 51. Um, they immediately go and they start like trying to pry on the alien and checking him out and exper- uh, not experimenting, but analyzing the alien and all that stuff. Because this is the freshest alien that they've had in a long time. They do reveal that they had three aliens that they had recovered from the crash in New Mexico back in the day. But they still... Um, had never had something this fresh, I suppose, and undamaged, except for Will Smith knocking him out. Yeah. Um, during this time, we also get Will Smith stealing a helicopter, telling a much bigger dude <laughs> <laughs> that he's stealing the helicopter and to yeah, just say that he hit okay. him. He goes over to El Toro to see if by any chance, even though he just found out that El Toro was destroyed, to see if by any chance... Jasmine has survived. Uh, and sure enough, like they're, I mean, I kind of like that about the story. Like their love, you know, took them together, even though he knew that the base had been destroyed. Not to mention, I don't picture them getting to Area 51 any other way, you know? Yes, they, that's true. They, they wouldn't have reached that place. Which means that the first lady wouldn't have gotten there either. Yeah. And they yeah. wouldn't have had that, that beautiful scene. Coming scene. Up, yeah. Yeah. So, so again, you, you start seeing, like, everything ends in Area 51, you know? Like, that ends up being the place, which I think is awesome because it's this movie, once again, playing off of these things that everybody, you know, that didn't believe in aliens and all that had always criticized and made fun of. But that ends up being, like, the last stronghold, basically, for the United States, let's say, you know? Yeah. And... So we got the first lady really damaged. She looked great, to be honest, considering that she had a helicopter crash in what seemed like a gigantic fireball. Yeah, those were two things that threw me off. She was pinned down by aluminum. Yeah. You know, so she moved aluminum and then she was able to move. (laughs) Yeah. And the second thing is you fly to California and I've lived there and it's not a small place, even if you pinpoint it down to El Toro. Right. For him to land exactly 10 feet away from where they were. True. At night. At night. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway. Let's say it happens. Okay? Yeah. So they get picked up. Yeah. And so the first lady ends up taking over to Area 51 and they take her to the medical facility and eventually she ends up dying. Um, and we have this really beautiful scene with the president and, and his daughter. Um, you know, his daughter is like trying to cling on to her, but then they have to take her away. I think her, actually, the first lady actually kind of, like, signals for them to take her away because she just can't bear the pain of, you know, knowing that she's about to die. And um, she dies. She passes away, and then the president walks out into the hallway. People to his left and his right just kind of pause everything they're doing, and there's silence, and he sits down next to his daughter. And You know, I feel like in... in, Because the first lady could have easily had died. If she was going to die, she could have easily died in the damage. Yeah. But I feel like they let this continue for a couple more minutes just so they can see the president 
vulnerable. Yeah. Because if you see him, he's not vulnerable at any time unless it's with his little girl. True. Even since, it's just a loving father. Yeah. And at the same time, find closure for that point, you know, of his life. Yeah. You know? And I think a little bit of, I mean, imagine the fire that this must, must have lit in him. Yeah. Definitely. You know? Like, to be like, okay, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to do everything in my power to stop these these things, you know? And you kind of see that because he uh, he takes a visit to where they're uh, analyzing the alien that Will Smith brought in. And we see eventually this alien waking up, taking out all the scientists who were in the room. And when the president and his entourage walk into that place, which is kind of like separated by a glass wall, um, the president ends up having the first conversation between a human and an alien. So basically the species the species communicates telepathically. They don't have a mouth. And so what they did is that they got a, a tentacle around the neck of Dr. Oaken and the guy was communicating through Dr. Oaken's mouth. And that's when they have a conversation between the president and, and this alien and the president is asking, you know, we could learn so much from each other. Can there be a truce? Can there be a peace? And the alien responds, yeah, no. No <laughs> peace. Um and then proceeds to like mess up with the president's mind, mess with the president's mind, and he basically tells them his entire plan, their entire plan th- telepathically, letting them know it's like you guys are next. And they, this is where we discover that they're like locusts, that they're an alien species that they're what they do is basically go from world to world, consume all the natural resources, and move on to the next one. Um, Why is it that villains always tell their plan at the end of everything? I know, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, better than hearing a monologue from the alien, you know? Yeah, that's true. Especially through a guy with tentacles around <laughs> his neck, you know? Anyway, so they shoot down the alien through the glass, which isn't bulletproof. They shoot him down. They kill the alien. And the president decides, let's nuke this, you know, let's nuke these people. Um, they tried to nuke him unsuccessfully. Uh, nukes don't work. Their shields are still up. By this point, there is basically like no hope. Everybody is kind of like submerging themselves in despair and being like, oh my God, there's no hope. Dave Levinson specifically has taken to whiskey. Whiskey has become his best friend and he's very drunk. And then he has this conversation with his ex-wife, Connie, where, you know, she's like, you know, I had to make the decision that I, that I, that I made to leave you because it was for you know, for my career, like, you know, it was, it was the, the opportunity to be part of the white house, you know, to be part of, of a presidential team. Having you ever wanted to be part of something special, you know, and then he was like, I was part of something special. <laughs> so it's alien attack and a broken heart. Yep. Yep. There's plenty of stuff going mm-hmm. on. And yet still this movie doesn't seem packed. You notice that? Mm-hmm. Like it's compared, so- compared to a lot of other movies, that have a big cast of characters, this movie doesn't feel like it's too much. It's it's very smart storytelling through very subtle, some subtle and some very explicit ways. It tells the story of each one of these characters without it seeming like it's like, oh my God, I lost track of things, you know? Yeah, it was pretty much a big meal, but eating it in small bites. Yeah. It, it didn't feel like a lot at once. Yeah. And uh, basically, we have this scene where David is speaking to his dad. His dad is worried about him because he's, you know, like completely drunk. And he's on the floor and his dad somehow gives him this 
moment of, has his moment of, or it doesn't have a moment of brilliance, but he just sparks brilliance in him. And he tells him, like, get up, you're going to catch a cold. And then he's like, what did you say? He was like, you know, I said, get up, you're going to catch a cold. <laughs> he was like, dad, you're a genius, you're a genius. <laughs> then what is perhaps the biggest miracle in this entire movie, David goes from being completely drunk to being like the clarity of Albert Einstein, just yeah, within a matter of seconds. He's yeah, like, that's the quickest getting over a hangover, drunk, oh, yeah. everything all at once. Brain operating at full capacity Even and better. <laughs> yeah. So, or maybe whiskey just does that to you. Maybe that's like the next stage of whiskey that I haven't gotten to. Like, I got to get to the point where I lose all hope in life, and then I get to brilliance. This will surprise me though. Obviously, they don't show everything, but he starts with half a bottle. Yeah. They move different scenes past that. He's still on half of a half, <laughs> fully intoxicated. Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I've never really drank whiskey. Is that possible to you, drink a quarter of a bottle and be to that extreme? You're not gonna like figure out how to beat aliens <laughs> after after consuming like three quarters of a bottle of whiskey, man. I'll tell you that much. But uh, this guy does because he's Jeff Goldblum. Thank goodness for whiskey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He survived dinosaurs, bro. He can survive. He can survive this. He can survive whiskey. So um, he comes up with this idea, basically, of implanting a computer virus in the mothership of the spaceship of the of the aliens. And of course, everybody says, "What are you talking about? The mothership? How are we going to get into the mothership?" And he says, "Well, we're going to fly the spaceship out there." And uh, everybody's like, "Nobody's qualified to fly the spaceship except the Fresh Prince of Bel Air." And up steps Will Smith, and he says, you know, I've seen these things in action, sir. I'm very aware of their maneuvering capabilities and blah, 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 blah. And so they let these two guys basically, you know, go in and uh, fulfill this mission. So the mission is... Wait, before you get to that, remember how they tested the spaceship first? Oh, yeah. To test, because the whole point of the computer virus is that it disables their shields. Right? Right. So to test it... He was trying to prove a point, so he (laughs) activates the shields, put a soda can on top of the spaceship, tells, remind me of his name? Uh, I forget, but he's like a colonel or something in there. He tells him, you know, pull out your gun and just shoot that can off. So the guy's like, okay, he has a president for permission. He's like, hey, be my guest. So this is the part that boggles me, is like, he shoots the can, the shield is up, so the bullet just bounces off. Ricochets, like everywhere. And for whatever reason, it manages to miss, like, what, 20, 25 people? (laughs) (laughs) And it ricochets, like, you hear a ricochet, like, at least, like, a good, I don't know, five to seven times? Yeah. It it bounces off the entire room, and nobody even flinches. Yep. And then he gets permission to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, he he hesitated a little more. He was like, "Uh, I don't know if this is such a good idea. But he, he manages to hit the can, and therefore... You know, the, Proves this point that he could disable the shields. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, before they take off and to, to fulfill this mission, which basically consists of strapping a nuke to the spaceship, um, getting the equipment in there to, you know, uh, implant the virus with, with this little antenna, they have to drive into the mothership, dock in the mothership. Once they're docked, activate the little signal to upload the virus then they have to shoot the nuke, which doesn't detonate on impact. It detonates upon, you know, trigger. So they have to shoot the nuke into somewhere in the mothership, and then they activate the nuke. They have 30 seconds to get out of the mothership, 
quick enough to get away from the blast. So that's a plan. Before they go on this plan, Steve decides to take the step to get married to Jasmine. He gets the chaplain from Area 51, I guess, um, and they get married. Their witnesses are Dave and Connie, mm-hmm. during which ceremony Connie realizes, like, oh, my God, this guy's still wearing the wedding ring. You know, three days later, uh, three years later, he's still wearing the wedding band. This is kind of like their moment to kind of like reconnect, you know, yeah. fall in love again. And I love that they combine the entire thing. Again, it's kind of like smart storytelling. I don't know. It just works. They didn't have to do much. It was just a couple of looks between them. Yeah. And you knew that it, something had rekindled in her. Which is great motivation for him to come back to her because yes. realistically, what was his motivation besides, yeah, taking out the aliens? Yeah. But we all need a woman to fight for. Absolutely. Um, and then they get married... They get their two cigars. Almost forgot them, but they got their two cigars. They get into the ship. Will Smith almost crashes uh, through the <laughs> through the the the, the 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 where the what do you call it the hangar or whatever. The hangar. Yeah, because somebody had put the controls backwards or upside down. Where actually they were backwards. Like forward wasn't forward. Forward was backwards. Yeah. Yeah. So he flipped the instructions. Yeah. You know something that's funny is that up to this point. Steve and Dave hadn't really interacted much. The first time that they interact is when they actually, when Dave proves his point, David proves his point about, you know, his theory of, of, of putting down the shield. Uh, Steven steps up and says, I'll pilot the ship. But it, honestly, it's a beautiful moment. Like, all jokes aside, I love the way that this comes together, that this duo comes together. Because this guy is over here talking about, you know how I'm always trying to save the world by recycling? You mm-hmm. know, well, here's my chance to save the world for real, you know? All of it kind of coming full circle for him. He's regaining the love of his lady. And then over here on this other side, you got Will Smith who recovered his lady, right? Mm -hmm. After thinking he lost her. And now he sees an opportunity to fulfill his lifelong dream of being in outer space. And he's stepping up to put his life at risk. Like knowing that no one else could do this thing because no one else has like fought these things. Yeah, and that's what we were referring to at the beginning of this that... They implement little things into the storytelling. Yeah. That at the end of it, there's a purpose. Yeah. All of it all of it comes to this precise moment where these two characters are willing to like risk it all for the sake of like not only for the sake of saving the world, but of fulfilling their dreams too. You know? And that's a really special thing. I love the way that it comes together. And that first shot when everybody else kind of walks away and it's just the two of them staring at the ship, that's the first time that these two characters actually connect. And it's incredible that the two characters that end up saving the planet, you know, mm-hmm. hadn't really at all crossed paths or connected up to this very point. And every, the entire buildup that we've seen throughout the movie is what connects them. It's a, it's an awesome thing. And without either one of these two, it couldn't have happened. Yeah. Definitely. Which is fantastic. I, I love it. So then they decide, okay, if we manage to put the shields down, let's let the rest of the world know. And they decide to communicate because satellite communication has been lost. They decide to communicate through Morse code. The old-fashioned way. <laughs> yeah. And here's where we get a little bit of uh, American exceptionalism. Because <laughs> as they're sending out, they have this, like, montage, basically, of, like, different armies throughout the world receiving the Morse code signal uh, message from the Americans. And it seems, basically, they make it seem like the whole world's military was, like, sitting around waiting for the U.S. to do something. To make a decision. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so like the English uh, commander or whatever, he's like, hey, it's a blood, bloody time. And they coordinate basically for if this mission that the U.S. is spearheading works, 
they have a window of what is it a matter of minutes or something yeah before they they get their power back up and right you know freaking return the favor on this so yeah so yeah they take off on the spaceship steve and david they dock in the mothership they're able to upload the virus but when they docked they got kind of like clamped the spaceship got clamped up in this in this by this machine so they can't exit so now they're pretty much like resignating themselves to we're gonna die and before all this on the side note you know the president was preparing you know the the fighters oh yeah to motivating them you know to to fight because the people that they got were just some of them were inexperienced some of them hadn't flown a plane in a long time yeah and he gave them an amazing speech that just pumped them up to to back them up yeah and that is by far to this day i feel is the best movie speech that has ever come like they have tried to top it at in different points but man this speech is just i don't know what it's what it is about it it's just motivated maybe it's a way that it's woven into the whole fourth of july thing because he's basically like reimagining the fourth of july you know he's basically telling them like this is no longer about us it's no longer about america this is about yeah. the world and our survival so we're fighting now for the survival of our entire species and if we succeed this is now the world's independence day which is just come on yeah it's pretty like uh, chills something the world should do now put their differences aside and just come together exactly oh man all right so um uh dave and david and, and and steven are up there they're clamped up they can't escape they wrap their heads around the fact like okay we're we're gonna die you know let's shoot this nuke let's smoke our cigars uh let's celebrate the fact that we were at least able to put the the virus in there let's hope that it worked because they have no clue they have no way of knowing so let's hope that it worked let's shoot this nuke they shoot the nuke aliens are like what the heck is going on because of the whole damage that the nuke causes again it hasn't exploded yet hasn't been detonated yet but because of the whole damage that it causes it forces the clamp to let them loose so now they see the opportunity They're, okay can you get us out of here in 30 seconds yeah let's do it <laughs> i ain't here no fat lady so they're jetting out of there trying to escape within 30 seconds mothership is huge um jeff goldblum repeats his lines from jurassic park do you ever catch that no, I, I, I don't even remember the one. From There's a moment in Jurassic Park with Jeff Goldblum's character, Dr. Ian, whatever. He's in the back of a pickup truck and or a Jeep or something, and they're running away from the T-Rex. So he's, think about it, the T-Rex is chasing them. He's the one that's most exposed. He's in the pickup, you know, the bed of a pickup truck. So he's telling the dudes who are driving the thing, he's like, must go faster, must go faster, must go faster. <laughs> and he repeats the same exact lines here in in, uh, in, in, in Independence Day when uh, Steve Heller's piloting the ship. He keeps on telling him when he sees the door starting to close, he's like, must go faster, must go faster, must go faster, go, 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 go. It's so great. Jeff Goldblum is national treasure, man. Um, eventually, we... They escape, the blast happens, they get completely like battered by the blast. We don't see what happens to them after that point. Down back on Earth, the president decides that he is not only going to motivate these people, but he's going to get into that into that pilot cockpit, cockpit, cockpit. cockpit. He's going to get into the cockpit himself and he's going to lead the troops, which is 
It's amazing, man. Leading by example is not just like, hey, guys. Heck, yeah. Go take care of this. I'll stay back here and watch. No, I'm going to freaking be in front of with you guys. Yeah. That's such a moving moment because it also brings everything back full circle about him. You know, the entire the country was doubting him when the movie began, doubting his leadership skills, doubting his ability to lead the country because of his youth, because of his inexperience. They're also... And then we also had those elements where he was talking about, he mentions that at different points, he's like, life was so much easier when I was a fighter pilot. Like, as a pilot, I knew what I had to do. When they launched us, when they deployed us, it was because we had already clear orders in mind. And now I don't know what to do in the middle of the situation. So, like, for all of it to come back full circle to him getting into that pilot seat and leading his people, like, I get chills just talking about yeah. it. It's it's such an such an awesome way of like rounding out that character. Best president, by the way, <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> movies. He, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I don't really remember too many presidents in other movies, but I think this may be the first time, at least in that time, where yeah, a president takes kind of like a lead role as yeah. the president. Yeah, usually they need saving instead of like, hey, I'm exactly. taking exactly. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's an awesome moment. So he gets into the. He gets in there and he's leading the pilots and they're approaching the ship. They shoot. He shoots off one shot, and the the, the shield's still on. And then everybody's like, "All right, get your men out of there! Get out of there! Get out of there!" But he says no. He turns on his his afterburners. <laughs> he starts going faster, closer to the alien ship, and he's like, "I want one more shot." And he shoots it. Boom! Goes through, and then it's just celebration from there. And then comes the attack, and they start you know shooting it in all sorts of ways. Then the aliens release their fighters, which now do not have shields either. So now it's a fair fight, in a way. You know, they yeah. got laser blasters and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> and then comes another piece of another character's redemption story. Another just uh, brilliant piece of writing where Russell Case, the dude who just minutes before was, like, drunk off his mind. At least he drank some coffee to get rid of the, yeah, you know, to, like, sober up. At least it was a little more believable. Yeah. <laughs> He was just down there when they were giving like a little crash course into like the modern airplanes. Um, and he was basically like, like you know, came up and he said, you know, you can count on me, sir. You know, talking to the commander or yeah, whatever. I won't let you down. I won't let you down. You know, ever since they kidnapped me, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. And then everybody starts, you know, doing weird faces, which is kind of weird because you got a spaceship hovering over you. Yeah. How much more believable can it be? For real. <laughs> but they're still looking at him weird. Point is... President has one more missile. The alien ship is already opening up its primary weapon, which is in the middle right underneath it. Well, actually, giant the president laser. was out of missiles. The one that had one left was Russell. No, but before that, the president shot one last missile to try to get it into the weapon. Oh, did the alien weapon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it hit, it hit one of the doors that had opened. Okay. Yeah, and so that was like the last shot. And suddenly, out of nowhere, comes Russell saying, you know, I've got one more. Hmm. You know, I've got one missile. I'm armed or whatever. And um, you see him coming in, and basically the command center, you know, tells him, like, everybody, you know, look out for him. So the president and the two other dudes are, like, you know, just watching his back and whatnot. And he tries to shoot his missile. Missile fails. Um, tries to shoot it again. Missile fails. And the thing is jammed somehow. The missile won't release. So everybody's just kind of like, you know, okay, you know, get, get out of there. You know, you guys are going to get, get killed out there. And then comes this scene that, you know, is just, man, I don't know if I can say it without getting teared up. <laughs> My man, Russell. Whew. 
then comes the scene where he basically, you know, he tells the command center, you know, just please tell my kids that I love them. And when his oldest kid had snuck into the command center and he heard him saying that. All this while looking at a picture of his kids yeah. on his dashboard. Oh, man. And um, and then basically what he does is that he flies up into where the beam comes out of and he's going to kamikaze, you know, he's going to sacrifice himself to destroy that primary weapon. And he does it. And as he's going in, you know, he says this crazy line, you know, like, in the words of my generation, up yours. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it works. You know, they destroy the main, the primary weapon. Uh, the pilots that survived land. Um, and this dude who was being made fun of, you know, who was just a complete screw up, ends up being the guy who saves the day. At least for that part of the, for that you know, for Area 51. He's the one that saves the day. Ah, man. Yeah, it was... Do you think if he would have ejected, he would have had a chance? That's a good question, man. Like, while, while flying up, eject, I, I mean, obviously we've never been in a situation, but maybe? I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question. But then again, would a sh- would a, would an airplane main- flying vertically, would an airplane maintain its course if, you didn- if you're not holding it that, in yeah, that, that direction? That's the problem. It's no longer I think so. Yeah. Vertical. Yeah. <sighs> At least he made sure, you know? Yeah, because he wasn't even sure if it was going to work. And right. He's here risking his life. For all you know, the laser hits and that's it. But in- mm-hmm. instead, it kind of did like it, it, it imploded. Yeah. You know, and... and- that allowed everybody else to continue fighting. Yeah, and they were, you know, immediately they start saying, you know, like spread the word around the world, let them know how to destroy the, the ships. Um, and so the ship starts exploding, you know, all sorts of like, you know, fire going all, all over the place. At the same time, there's like pieces of the mothership from the earth, from outside the earth's atmosphere that are raining into the earth and it looks like fireworks. Um, they start asking about Steve and David. You know, whether they survived, they said that they lost, you know, contact with them. And then they suddenly, you know, hear a blip, something entering the atmosphere. They meet them out there in a Jeep. They walk out. Cool scene, man. Spaceship is like crashed, you know, smoking and stuff like that. And But these two guys are walking with all the swagger yeah, that is available in 1996. <laughs> that They gathered all the swagger and put it into these two dudes. While and, smoking uh, their cigars. While smoking cigar. I mean, there's just no better description, mm-hmm. visual of badassery than Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum walking away out of that uh, crash. I think all ship. they needed was that whiskey he was drinking earlier. Yeah. Cup with ice <laughs> and just doing that walk. Yeah. Seriously, man. What a scene. Anyway, so they meet him. Their ladies hug up on him and stuff. And uh, Will Smith grabs little homeboy. You know, he's like, you know, I promised you fireworks, didn't I? Just destroyed a whole <laughs> alien race just to give you your fireworks. And, um, and yeah, that, oh, then the president, another moment of closure, right? Another moment of things coming full circle. President walks over to David, not too pandery. Like he wasn't too, you know, sucking up or whatever. He's just like, you know, not bad. And then he smiles like, not bad at all. (laughs) It was just good enough, you know, considering that he could have punched him right then and there. Yeah, he could have returned that punch. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, that was dope, man. Like, ah. So... When we walked out in middle school and saw this movie, we both walked out, I think, with the same, like, opinion back then of, like, this was the best movie we'd or, seen. Obviously, we're not comparing it to anything else, but at that time, yeah. we walked out honestly saying this was the best movie of all time. Yeah. It had a little bit of everything. 
obviously we're not conscious. We weren't as conscious as we are now. Right. How movies are made, but it was it was incredible. And to this day, it makes you feel a certain type of way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, every time that I've watched this movie, and and you know, this last time included, I I I just I walk away feeling that this is a timeless movie. This is a movie that, even though other movies have come around in more modern times using a lot of CGI, you know, movies like War of the Worlds or something like that, for some reason they they don't feel as complete as this movie does. You know, when it comes to like an alien invasion movie, and. It it just uh, it felt big. The movie felt big, you know. It really felt global. It didn't feel like this was just about the U.S. Like it was just about a small group. It felt so broad. Um, I still think that it. I'll stack it up against you know any movie in its category as one of the best movies of my time, yes, for sure. Especially what they did with in '96. You know, out of yeah. all years to have that ability to put out such a great story with multiple actors and it was kind of i see like a like tying a shoelace you start in in one point you go through all these loops and eventually it connects to make that one loop yeah and they were able to do that and you understood it it wasn't overwhelming Mm -hmm. you were able to relate and it like i said it hit different points and like for instance, you know, uh, for nine eleven, you know, it was mm-hmm. I had never put those two things together, right? To to watching this movie again, hmm. I think that it's um, it's a movie that I mean, it's crazy the fact that it appealed to me in such a strong way back when I was how old were you at that point? Thirteen, fourteen, ninety six, yeah, thirteen, yeah. The fact that it appealed to me in such a strong way when I was thirteen for different reasons. And now it appeals to me even more because now I'm over here like geeking out over the writing. You know what I mean? Like the attention to detail with the writing and the character development and all that stuff. I'm geeking out about different stuff. And it's still, I'm still walking away from it at 37 years of age with... That same feeling. Yeah. That same exact feeling. Like this is a movie. And and, and it's crazy because now we've got that sequel that they made of it, which you haven't seen, right? I haven't seen. Yeah. I've seen it maybe twice. And I'm actually going to rewatch that movie with Joshua, um, and we're going to review that one. But it doesn't compare. It's a movie that utilizes everything that is available nowadays for movie making. And it does not compare to the original because it's... <laughs> I, I almost feel like when when you have to eliminate the creativity of bringing something to life in practical ways when you eliminate that you're almost you're like you're like limiting the overall creative expression of the movie yeah, you know sometimes simple is better yeah you know you see you see stories like like George Lucas creating Star Wars you know they had there was no Star Wars when Star Wars came out there was nothing like it so he was forced to basically create an entire world out of nothing. And when you have that pressure of, I need to bring this thing to life, something that nobody has ever seen, when you've got that pressure on you as a filmmaker, it just pushes you creatively. It makes you do stuff that, you know, nobody anticipated. And I think that's the reason why they won, you know, the Oscar for uh, Best Visual Effects. Well-deserved. Very well done. You know, if you haven't seen Independence Day in a while, um, I highly, highly recommend it. It's a movie that, uh, just reminds us about what matters, you know, um, as human beings. And that's kind of like what any survival 
uh, movie does. Whether it's fighting against zombies, aliens, whatever. It all boils down to like, hey, we have more in common than we have dividing us. And we let's let's gather, let's team up for the sake of defeating this thing that is trying to destroy us. Yeah, like what I said earlier, you know, let's put our differences aside and you can relate that to anything and just, you know, stick together. Yeah. You know, we're all here trying to accomplish good. So we just got to make the effort and and unite. And I think there's probably no better way to finish than with this. Good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in this history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interests. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July and you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as a day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It was very special for Edgar and I to reconnect. Um, and right around this time, right, where we're like celebrating the 24 years after we went to watch this movie together. Thank you guys for listening to our entire review and breakdown of the movie. It was so much fun. No, definitely. This came at a perfect time. You know, this wasn't even planned. It just happened yeah. to work out this way. And, um, yeah, thank you for having me again. I look forward to doing other reviews with you and, and the audience. And thanks again. Absolutely, brother. So, guys, uh, we'd love to hear what you think about Independence Day. Um, you know, does this movie mean to you as much as it meant to us? Uh, we'd love to find out. You guys can write us at g101podcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at g101podcast. And for all things Geekology 101, you can head over to our website, geekology101.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until the next episode. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Happy 4th of July. Peace. Game over.